This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Because from birth to death, we're constantly growing, learning and changing, it can take you your whole life really getting to know yourself. Learning and discovering things you can do when you take on new challenges. You may just surprise yourself. I fancied having a go at podcasting six years ago, never expecting I would still be and at the level that I am today. But I like a challenge. It's also helped me with my self-awareness because what I've come to understand is I know realistically what I can and can't do. I have to say that what's helped me through to feeling like this is talking about stuff that's on my mind. Input from a fresh perspective sometimes can get rid of you being unable to see the wood for the trees. Now something beneficial is therapy. I've had my own times in the past when things have come at me and I've found that taking that time out and talking to someone, even a complete stranger, has helped me no end. Therapy isn't just a tool designed for those who've experienced trauma in their lives, not at all. Just talking through some things, for we all have different things on our mind, can help you to learn your limits, develop boundaries for yourself, give you stepping stones to learn how to cope with things, make positive changes, all good stuff that helps you be the best version of you that there is. If you're thinking of trying therapy to go on that journey of self-discovery from wherever you are in your life to help it make the best you that there can be, then BetterHelp is a great option to choose. It's entirely online and it works around you and your schedule because it's designed to be flexible and convenient. It's also easy to do, just takes filling out a short questionnaire and you'll be matched with a licensed professional therapist best suited for your needs. If you feel that it isn't working out for you after a time, then you can simply switch therapists, no problem, with no extra charge. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com TCE today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash T-C-E. Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, where each time around I strive to bring you tales of true crime that I've sourced from the UK and Ireland that you may not be as familiar with, that you may find scarcely credible, horrific, mind-boggling, but are all true, and all that are the type of case I like to bring, what I'd like to listen to myself, totally. The I doing this is myself, Paul, the creator, host, and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, my beloved feline potential stuffed doorstop, Pixie, the true crime enthusiast cat is here as ever too, but most importantly, so are you folks, the wonderful enthusiasts that make the show go around. It remains my privilege to be speaking to you today, and for you joining me in the MOG, the world, and I do hope that as you have done, then it's for an episode that finds you and yours all good, all safe, and all well. No preamble here this time then, we're on to the concluding part of Crime Wave quicker than Nicola Sturgeon's gardener rubbing his hands together in glee. What is all that about, eh? Last episode then, I introduced you to an individual named Jordan Davidson, a prolific burglar and general sounding scumbag, in and out of the nick more times than a prison officer, but who was released two years early of a three-year sentence on licence in December 2016. I also detailed in part the crime wave that he went on over the months following his release, beginning just five days after it, and which as time progressed, led to North Wales Police issuing a statement appealing for information for his whereabouts. Because events had proper escalated by then. Coincidentally, if you haven't listened to part one of Crime Wave, then please do before you continue here, or else this part will make as much sense as the US tax return system. If you are on board... I know a lot like the full shebang to listen to, so I'm sure many of you will just be waiting for part two to come out. But if you are on board, then you'll be aware that Jordan Davidson was in the very least someone who seriously needed to be stopped and taken off the streets. I've alluded to it in the first part, but I will here give you the full details as to why Davidson was as wanted as he was. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events 
include an injury detail that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion when listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast for the concluding episode of a tale I've entitled Crime Wave. The day that Davidson and his friends arrived back in the Wrexham area from their weekend away in Old Colwyn was the same Monday that it was realised that no one had seen Nicholas Churton since the previous Thursday, the 23rd, when Nick had, for him, had a busy day. He'd spoken with a neighbour of his during the morning and then went into the town centre, visiting the former now-closed North and South Wales Bank Weatherspoons pub known colloquially as Bottom Spoons, in the late morning. He'd also once again spoken to North Wales Police at 12.10pm that afternoon, referenced his calls from a few days previously, to inform them that he had discovered that the full name of the suspect he'd been advised to find more out about was Jordan Davidson, though how Nick had arrived at his surname is unreported. When he returned home in the early afternoon, he was visited by an old family friend he'd known for 45 years, and then shortly before 3pm, spoke by telephone with a friend, Colin Pemberton, who he arranged to meet up with the next day. By the evening, he was on his own in the flat. Now, Nick had not turned up for his meeting with Colin Pemberton on the Friday, and by just after 8am on the Monday morning, his friend... You'll come to see why I've said that in such a way later on. Was concerned enough to head around to his flat in Churton Close, as his calls over the weekend had gone unanswered. Finding Nick's flat unlocked when he got there, he made his way in to a disturbing sight. The carpet of the hall of the flat was heavily bloodstained, with a considerable amount of blood spatter visible on the walls at a low level between the floor and a height of about a metre. Calling out and getting no reply, heading into the living room, Nicholas Churton was found lying on his side on the sofa, having been what only can be described as hacked to death, although it was apparent to police called immediately to the scene at 8.23am that the attack had taken place in the hallway when he was lying on the floor, and he had afterwards been dragged through to the living room and lifted onto the sofa. I say hacked to death because the findings at the post-mortem examination carried out by Home Office pathologist Dr Brian Rogers detailed exactly that. The injuries which Mr Churton had suffered were consistent with repeated blows from a machete-like object as well as a circular defect to the back of his skull which was consistent with a heavy blow from a hammer. He was also found to have three fractured ribs and there were seven separate injuries to the face, skull and neck, some of which had cut right through to the bone, some of which had cut into his brain, and which had severed the spinal cord. There were also two major injuries to his right hand, which had cut through the bones, and had almost severed the hand completely, injuries that were consistent with Mr Churton trying to protect himself with his right hand. While several reports also claim that Mr Churton's leg had been amputated as well. Horror beyond belief that, isn't it? There was also evidence that following the murder, his killer had possibly tried to start a fire in the flat, ostensibly to try to cover up evidence of the crime, as the smoke alarm had been smashed down from the ceiling. Traces of Nick's blood were also found on the rear window of a property overlooking number 30. Now, putting the victim, who had named Jordan Davidson as the man who had attempted to rob him some days before to police on the day he'd last been seen, when it was ascertained that Nick had been dead since also, putting that together with the machete that had been found in the garden of the property in Benjamin Road, because it was revealed to be Nicholas Churton's blood that stained it, and the mobile phone that had been found belonging to Davidson at the same property, with all the pictures of him posing with a machete, and the text messages saying he'd gone up a level the previous Thursday evening, 
and you don't have to be murder she wrote to work out who police's prime suspect was immediately. And by the following day, Tuesday the 28th of March, Detective Superintendent Yastin Davis, the senior officer leading Operation Grice, the hunt for Nick's killer, issued the following statement, part of which I recounted previously, and which I shall recap here. Mr Churton, who lived alone, was a vulnerable, partially disabled man, died in horrific circumstances. I would like to thank the people of Wrexham for their support so far, and I am now appealing again for as much information as we can get from the public to help us with our investigation. It is my belief that Mr Churton was killed sometime between 2.45pm on Thursday and midnight on Friday, March 24th. I'm appealing for anyone who may have information which could assist our investigation to come forward. I am particularly keen to hear from anyone who heard or witnessed a disturbance in Crescent Close or who may have seen Mr Davidson between 2.30pm on Thursday, March 23rd and yesterday morning, March 27th. I believe Jordan Davidson is somewhere in the Wrexham area and the key to locating him is information from the public. I can confirm that recent operations in Vernon Street in Wrexham and in Old Colwyn are connected to the investigation. If anyone sees Mr Davidson or knows of his whereabouts, I'd ask that they contact police immediately, but under no circumstances should anyone approach him as he may be in possession of weapons. I also want to reassure the public that every effort is being made to locate the suspect. There are increased reassurance patrols in and around the town and people will notice an active police presence as we carry out inquiries. A 29-year-old male from Vernon Street and a 35-year-old man and a 21-year-old woman, both from Tleesvine Road and Old Colwyn, had also been arrested that morning on suspicion of assisting an offender, but were each released on police bail pending further inquiries and were later released without charge. Now, by that Tuesday, the rampage of Jordan Davidson was almost at an end, but later that evening, he was in the Handbridge area of the nearby city of Chester, where the account of what occurred is best told by a then 19-year-old woman named Porsche Roberts, who described later how she was a passenger in a car driven by her friend, John Kevin Roberts, no relation, when Killer Davidson talked his way into them giving him a lift. Now, Porsche, a former army medic, was then a wheelchair user, having broken his spine in a road traffic accident in 2016 and suffering with scoliosis as a result, and sadly is deceased today, having taken her own life in 2019. But back in November 2017, she recalled to North Wales Live how she'd first met Davidson when she was living homeless on the streets of Wrexham and how on the 28th of March 2017, she was stuck in a car in Chester with John Roberts, who had no money to buy petrol, when Davidson, with his face covered, spotted her and called across the street to her. Porsche said, I'd known Davidson from living on the streets, but I wasn't friends with him. He was a drug user, taking heroin and crack cocaine. Davidson was shouting me over. His face was covered, so I asked him why and he said that someone was after him. I thought it was another homeless person though, not the police. The killer, who unknown to Porsche and her friend was by that time wanted for murder, said he would buy petrol for them if they gave him a lift, though not specifying where to, and so they drove around aimlessly, Davidson keeping his face covered, whilst all the while his behaviour became more erratic. Porsche continued, my friend was getting worried. I always went in the back of the car because it was bigger and easier for me to, but Jordan insisted that he sat behind me. He was making sexual advances towards me from the back, and I was feeling uncomfortable. Suddenly, whilst travelling through a housing estate in Hambridge, Davidson told Roberts to stop and for Porsche to get out of the vehicle, and it was then that she saw he was armed. She continued. He was behind me and I saw something shiny. He had a kitchen knife. I was thinking, what do I do now? I told my friend to listen, to do what he said, 
and then Jordan disabled my wheelchair so I couldn't get away. I was really frightened. I didn't want to leave my friend, but I didn't want to call the police either because Jordan had a knife on him. Davidson, his face still covered, then made off down the road and approached 52-year-old Stephen Brown, a security guard at the Tesco Metro store on Pepper Street in the city centre, who had just finished work and was walking back over the old D bridge into Hanbridge to his car. As he walked along, Mr Brown saw Davidson approach him, his face partially covered, and then produce a claw hammer and demanded that Mr Brown hand over his money. Telling Davidson that he didn't have any money and trying to walk away, Davidson then lunged at him with a hammer, striking him several times about the head and knocking him to the ground, before stealing his wallet and mobile phone and running away. Staggering to his feet, bleeding heavily from one laceration to the right side of his forehead and another to the left, Mr Brown managed to walk to a nearby takeaway, where an ambulance was called for him and he was taken to the Countess of Chester Hospital, where he was treated with stitches and discharged the next day. However, an infection developed in his wounds, and two days later, he returned to hospital, at which stage it was discovered that Mr Brown had in fact suffered a depressed fractured skull in the attack. He also had a small bleed around the dura, and was immediately transferred to the Walton Centre in Liverpool, requiring specialist treatment. Following the violent attack, when Davidson returned to the car, as Porsche described, he looked like he'd seen a ghost, and was sweating profusely, telling the driver to make off quickly. In the next 30 minutes, Davidson directed the car to drive from Chester towards the Mould area, where the BMW estate visited the Shell garage at New Brighton near Mould, and Mr Brown's card was also used to buy food at the Mould McDonald's, before the car then headed towards the Flint area. Now, in part one of Crime Wave, I mentioned that upon arrival in Flint, the car then pulled up at the Gulf service station heading into Flint from the north up road. But further investigation has revealed that the petrol station the car stopped at in Flint was actually the Shell service station on the A548, heading towards the nearby town of Bagilt. If you watch the Murder Town documentary concerning the case, the arresting officers are interviewed at the service station I previously mentioned, but it categorically isn't the one that they arrested him at. I even had a friend of mine from work who's from Flint confirm to me that the Shell service station is the only one that's open 24 hours a day. Why Murder Town has done this, who knows, but there you go. I shall be back in Flint later on in the series. Massive hint there. And I'll take a little vid from there if Murder Town can't be asked to. But I digress. Stopping then at the Shell service station on the A548 Bagilt Road, whilst John Roberts fueled the car with petrol, Porsche stayed in the vehicle with a now hidden Davidson, she recalled. All he kept saying was, there's dead bodies everywhere. He had completely lost it. He wasn't making any sense. That's all he kept saying. It was at this point the police constables Rushby and Hall had arrived, leading to Davidson's arrest, as I described at the onset of the tale. Porsche described later. I heard a crack noise, like something hitting something. The police officer was holding his head, and Jordan was there with a hammer and a knife. They were trying to get hold of him. The police officer pepper sprayed him, tasered him. Nothing was working. He was like the Hulk. He was really strong. I got out of the car and dragged myself along the floor to get away from him. I thought I was going to be stabbed. I was petrified. I just felt completely helpless. I thought, he's going to kill us, and I'm not ready to die. I really thought he would kill me. Police constables Rushby and Hall for capturing Davidson and putting his crime wave to an end, later received commendations from then North Wales Police Chief Constable Mark Polin and a Police Bravery Award at the National Police Bravery Awards in July of the same year. Finally arrested once again then, but this time not to be released on bail hours later, 
Davidson was then taken to the Divisional Police Headquarters at St. Asaph, where, whilst being searched ahead of interview, a half-naked Davidson without warning suddenly attacked Detective Constable Don Kenyon, lunging at him and punching the officer repeatedly to the head. There was a prolonged struggle before Davidson was brought under control and handcuffed, with DC Kenyon suffering bruising to his head and face, as well as a shoulder injury as a result of the assault. There were several more offences to question Davidson about during an interview besides the murder of Nicholas Churton, all of which Davidson answered no comment to everything put to him. But regardless, on the 3rd of April 2017, Jordan Davidson appeared before magistrates charged with the murder of Nicholas Churton and a litany of other offences, including four offences of assault, three of them wounding to intent, an aggravated burglary, two robberies and an attempted robbery, and offences of burglary and an aggravated vehicle taking. He was then remanded in custody to a Majesty's Prison Alt Course in Liverpool, a Category B prison, until a further hearing in June, with a provisional date for his trial being set for September the 18th. Davidson was nowhere near finished with his crime wave yet though. Two days later, on the 5th of April, whilst in the care and separation unit of Altcourse, and in the process of being moved to a higher security prison, Davidson slashed the throat of prison officer Ian Mogleong with an improvised Stanley knife, leaving him a wound requiring 21 stitches and missing his carotid artery by millimetres. The attack took place when Davidson was being escorted by Officer Moglioni and another officer for a shower. He was allowed toiletries with him in the shower, including a mirror and two ordinary disposable razors. But he'd also concealed a lighter on him, and when he went into the shower room and they locked the door behind him, Davidson converted the razors into a makeshift weapon. At the end of his shower, or what was supposed to be his shower, Davidson then banged on the door. Officer Moglioni opened it and reached forward to take back the mirror and razors from Davidson, but as he did so, Davidson lashed out twice with a makeshift knife, slashing Mr. Moglioni to the neck, shouting, That's for stitching me up with a parcel. Davidson was then pushed back into the shower room and locked up, shouting inside about slashing any other officer who tried to seize him. As colleagues treated Officer Moglioni, who had staggered back and collapsed, Davidson said. He had it coming for stitching me up with added days. Now it was considered by Davidson a revenge attack because back in July 2013, Davidson was serving part of a 32-month prison sentence for burglary at Alt Course when the officer had caught him in possession of a package containing mobile phones and heroin. This led to Davidson subsequently being charged with bringing prohibited articles into prison and at Liverpool Crown Court in September 2013 he was duly sentenced to a further eight months in prison on top of the sentence which he was already serving. Yes, this is the logic of Jordan Davidson. Someone deserved to die because he was caught wrongdoing. Go figure. Officer Moglioni thankfully survived the attack, though the 21 stitches to his wound left him with a lasting scar to his neck, which he carried as a constant reminder of the traumatic incident. Testifying to a court later about the attack, he revealed that so traumatised had he been following it, he'd not had a shave with a razor ever since, because he couldn't bear the thought of a razor blade on his skin. That's three offences that's followed Davidson's apprehension then. Assaults on the arresting officers, upon the detective who conducted the interview, and then a prison officer, one of whom was nearly killed. With Davidson now transferred to Strangeways Prison in Manchester on remand, placed on a three-man unlock detail, so dangerous was he considered. The funeral of Nicholas Churton was held at Wrexham's Pentrabuchan Crematorium on Friday the 28th of April 2017, where it was attended by many and several friends of Nick's from across his life 
came together to pay tribute to their friend, perhaps best summed up by the following address from his friend and former customer, James Lawton, who wrote, All lives are touched by tragedy, but few as intensely as that of Nick Churton in his last years. The shocking nature of his passing only compounds the terrible sadness of his family and friends that he was unable to regain some of the gusto and humour that for so long enriched all those who came to know him and love him. After an education not marked by unswerving adherence to the disciplines of one of the nation's leading public schools, he qualified as an accountant and worked in Cape Town, South Africa, where he amassed many colourful stories of youthful adventure. For most of his life, Nick Churton wore a young man's clothes in that it was filled with relish and optimism, and, for most of the time, with the best of humour. Certainly, this is the man his family and friends will now choose to remember, not out of charity, but gratitude for knowing the best of him, and also knowing that it is something to be cherished beyond all the regrets and all the pain. Another, a former neighbour of Nick's in Churton Close, Lisa Gabriel said Nicholas was a lovely kind-hearted man who loved to watch a bit of tipping point he liked a glass of wine and always had a glass for me greeted with a smile I only knew him for a couple of months as he'd not long lived in Crescent Close he was a well-educated man who came across as posh to some but he was one of the most down-to-earth gentlemen I have ever met I used to cook and tidy up for him here and there as he was disabled and we formed a great friendship. It is so sad and tragic, such a loss. I will miss you dearly, old friend. Sleep tight. On the 30th of November 2017, Jordan Davidson came to trial at Mould Crown Court charged with the offences you've already heard of, and appearing via video link from Ashworth Hospital in Merseyside, where he had since been transferred to, pleaded guilty to all but one of the 14 charges that he faced before presiding Mr Justice Clive Lewis. A not guilty plea to one of the charges of robbery was accepted as the prosecution offered no evidence. Ahead of sentencing, prosecuting counsel Andrew Thomas Casey took the court through Davidson's catalogue of offending and the events as I've brought to you thus far. The thefts, burglaries, the arrests and releases, the attempted robberies, the assaults, the infatuation with a schoolgirl, Davidson's arrest on suspicion of murder, the assaults on police officers and prison staff, and of course, details of the murder of Nicholas Churton. The immediate days before and after which most of the associated charges were committed in, with Mr Thomas outlining that three of these serious offences, including the murder, were attacks on older men. Davidson had specifically targeted vulnerable victims, he said, and four of the catalogue of offences involved the use of a machete, which Davidson had acquired on or about the 13th of March. He told the court, We know that the defendant had the machete by this date because he had pictures taken of himself posing with it. The data associated with these photographs in the phone memory show that they were taken at about 5pm on March the 13th. This is the weapon which he later used to kill Nicholas Churton with. From DNA analysis of blood on the blade, we know that this was the murder weapon. However, it was not the only weapon Davidson had had on his person. As I'd said, he was also carrying an axe, which he took with him, drunk, to a friend's house on March the 18th. Unimpressed at his behaviour, his friends took the axe off him and it was later handed into police after Davidson's arrest. The court then heard that it was the following day, March the 14th, that Mr Churton had first telephoned North Wales Police, complaining that Davidson had been preying on him and had tried to steal from him. Mr Thomas said, Mr Churton alleged the defendant had threatened him with a hammer and caused damage to the flat. He persisted in his complaints to the police in several phone calls and gave detailed accounts. He also told a number of friends about the incident which he said had taken place and even had two locks changed on his flat. The court heard that Davidson had been charged with robbing Mr Churton 
and although that charge had not been proceeded with, it was relevant to say that in the week leading up to the murder, Nicholas Churton and Jordan Davidson had fallen out. Davidson had always denied that allegation, and indeed, no evidence for it was offered by the prosecution, but Mr Churton had persisted in his complaint to the police, and through local rumblings and gossip, as things always do, Davidson was soon aware of the allegation, said Mr Thomas. He's always protested his innocence in this matter. Again, this disagreement may have been a trigger for the defendant's conduct may also have contributed to the selection of Mr Churton as a victim. The court then heard of Davidson's infatuation with the schoolgirl he was texting, updating her constantly on his crime wave, with Mr Thomas saying, The text messages show that it was that relationship which was dominating his thoughts at the time of the offence. It is not only the content, but the very fact that he is messaging her, at times every minute, and giving a running commentary of his own actions only minutes after the murder. He told how Davidson had also written letters to her during his remand period, boasting about what he'd done, and expressing disappointment that he'd not gone down in a hail of bullets. These were served as exhibits in the case because Mr Thomas said these were evidence of attempts to manipulate his psychiatric evaluation, explaining what is relevant is that the defendant has continued to boast about what he did, even after being charged. He talks with pride about the fact there was a police manhunt to find him, and about the disruption which he caused on the Kaya Park estate. He boasts about the number of offences which he managed to commit, albeit that he has exaggerated them. These proceedings have led to a more extensive investigation, as the defendant has claimed to suffer from delusional symptoms. But the objective evidence for that is limited and doubts have been expressed. Detailed reports had indeed been prepared on Davidson by three consultant psychiatrists and although diagnosis was not straightforward, what was agreed was that Davidson suffered from a recognised mental disorder believed to be a schizophrenia type disorder and that he bore a psychological dependency on drugs. Mr Thomas told the court. The prosecution accepts that the court should take mental disorder into account as a mitigating feature. Davidson does suffer from a genuine mental disorder of some type, which has some effect on his behaviour, but it does not amount to a substantial impairment. Christopher Tehrani Casey, defending Davidson, agreed that his client, in his words, certainly suffers from a personality disorder, although it was unclear what. He acknowledged Davidson had read up on these subjects, but said Davidson suffered from a major psychoactive disorder which went back to his troubled childhood, which the court was in agreement with, continuing. We submit that when deciding what the correct starting point is for sentencing, we ask you to bear in mind this major, major psychiatric disorder this young man has been suffering with from a young age. And... He wasn't in Ashworth for nothing, was he? Mr Justice Lewis then adjourned sentencing until the following Wednesday, December the 6th, informing the court that because Davidson had been subject to prison recall to complete his existing sentence when he was arrested on suspicion of murder, no credit for any time served on remand ahead of his murder trial would be given, ahead of his inevitable life sentence. When he appeared via video link once again on the allocated day, stony-faced, wearing a black bomber jacket and white trousers, Davidson said nothing as, sentencing him for the murder of Nicholas Churton, Mr Justice Lewis described the killing as a brutal attack on a vulnerable, frail and defenceless old man, saying, You intended to kill Nicholas Churton, that is clear from the nature of the weapon and the injuries inflicted. You did go armed with a machete to the home of a vulnerable person. You inflicted numerous injuries. You cannot claim there is a lack of premeditation. Sentencing him to life imprisonment, Mr Justice Lewis then told Davidson that he would have to serve a minimum of 23 years and 4 months before ever being considered for release on licence, and would then 
only if the authorities are satisfied he was no longer a danger. It would have been a minimum of 28 years, he told him, but for his guilty plea. Aside from the mandatory life sentence imposed upon him for murder, Davidson received the following sentences to be served concurrently. Wounding with intent to cause grievous bodily harm for attacking the prison officer with a makeshift blade, six years. Robbery and actual bodily harm of a security officer using a hammer, eight years. Grievous bodily harm. The previous sentence was for the robbery of Mr. Brown. Grievous bodily harm of Mr. Brown, six years. For the attempted GBH of the arresting officer when Davidson was picked up, whom he'd struck with a hammer, eight years. For assaulting Michael Rogers and, and threatening him with a machete, five years. Aggravated burglary, eight years. Possession of a bladed article, six months. Burglary, two separate sentences of two years, six months. Aggravated vehicle taking, six months and a disqualification from driving for 15 months. And for the attempted robbery of the unique hair salon in Wrexham, four years. Better get yourself a rock hammer and a big poster, eh? Davidson was then taken down to begin his sentence. Following the sentencing, Mr Churton's family issued a brief statement through North Wales Police, saying, Nick was kind, loving and an extraordinary character who enriched the lives of all who knew him. He will be forever in our hearts. We would like to thank those who have supported us throughout this very difficult time. Detective Superintendent Yeston Davis, who had led the hunt for Davidson, also welcomed the sentence imposed against him, saying, The seriousness and level of offending clearly illustrates that Jordan Davidson is an extremely dangerous individual who is prepared to resort to horrific offending in order to fuel his chaotic drug addiction. The length of sentence imposed by the judge Lord Justice Clive Lewis clearly illustrates the seriousness of his offending and the danger he poses to the public of North Wales. He will serve a minimum of 23 years before he will ever be considered for release. This has been a very challenging investigation where many innocent lives have been affected by the callous acts of this man, and I hope that they will take some comfort from the fact that this man is now in prison for a considerable time, and that North Wales will be a safer place. I would also like to thank the numerous witnesses who helped us put such a compelling case before the court to help us convict Jordan Davidson. Just over two months later, on the 15th of February 2018, Davidson was back before a court, however, after then-Justice Secretary Robert Buckland had intervened in the case, referring his existing sentence for review by judges as it was deemed too soft. Flanked by heavily armoured prison guards, who he appeared to be laughing and joking with and not really having a care in the world, as he appeared at the Court of Appeal via a video link from Manchester Prison, Davidson smirked hearing Lady Justice Rafferty upping his minimum sentence to 30 years, telling the Court of Appeal that the other offences he'd pleaded guilty to, combined, would have justified a minimum sentence of 16 years by themselves. Had the previous minimum term of 23 years stood, the judge said, Davidson would have effectively got off unpunished for the other offences. And that's not right, is it? Davidson remains in prison today, and it will be 2047, and he will be 56 years old, before he's ever considered for release. A totally deserved sentence too, the collective feeling of which, by all involved, is summed up best by the words of Porsche Roberts, who said, following Davidson's sentencing, I still have nightmares about it, thinking how close I came to death. When you look in his eyes, it's like looking into the eyes of a shark. There's nothing in those eyes. He should never be released. I can't say I disagree there, to be honest. Now, following Davidson's sentencing, questions were raised as far as in Parliament by then Wrexham MP Ian Lucas over the multiple mischances that there was to recall Jordan Davidson to prison 
as you've heard, before he brutally murdered Nicholas Churton. Mr Lucas said, Davidson was a dangerous criminal and was known around Wrexham. He'd come to the attention of the police eight times between his release and Mr Churton's murder. I received correspondence from one constituent of mine telling me how she witnessed Davidson attempting to rob an elderly gentleman who was begging Davidson not to kill him. I find it terrifying that such a person was wandering the streets. He'd probably make the next mayor of Wrexham, actually. Mr Lucas's calls for a public inquiry into why Davidson was at large to kill Nick Churton was supported by his brother James, who told North Wales Live, My brother wouldn't harm a fly and he would befriend people easily. Nicholas had lots of problems in his life. He drank too much and had a broken marriage, and maybe the police thought he was a bit of a dropout. But he was an extremely kind and gentle person. He was a raconteur. He was very well educated and in a lot of things, very intelligent. Nicholas didn't deserve to be bashed to death by some idiot. I find it amazing Davidson was walking the streets. He broke in, well, the door was probably open knowing Nick, with a machete and hacked him to death. He was an evil man. Not only did he hack, you know, I mean, this is fairly severe stuff. Nick wouldn't have lifted an arm to anyone. He was a very peaceful guy. This guy took a machete to his head first of all, and then to his body, and then before he left, he chopped his arm off and his leg off with a machete. Everywhere Davidson seemed to go, he left a wake of violence in his path. The police shouldn't have allowed that to happen. The police took no action really, and two or three days later, this guy murdered my brother. I am angry about it, but at the same time I just want some closure. If the police had acted on his calls, then maybe he would be alive today. Now these calls did lead to two separate investigations by the Independent Office for Police Conduct into the conduct of North Wales Police in connection with their contact with Mr Churton prior to his murder. The force's response to an alleged robbery at Mr Churton's home on March the 12th and whether police complied with national guidance and procedures regarding incident management and safeguarding. I will add a link to the findings which were published in September 2019 and which make for interesting reading into the episode show notes. But to summarise, it found cases to answer for misconduct for four police officers and one civilian member of staff in relation to their dealings with Mr Churton concerning the aforementioned. Each were investigated by a panel, but misconduct was found not proven in each case more their conduct was censured for unsatisfactory performance. And bearing in mind, I have detailed how many times between December and March that Davidson had been arrested for various things, and the fact that police had not taken actions, including not taking into account his 12 previous offences committed while on bail, his two convictions for possessing a knife, not contacting the probation service or the community rehabilitation company regarding his bail conditions, and not contacting a nurse despite Davidson telling them he had psychosis and a personality disorder and was not taking his medication. I think the officers got off unbelievably lucky there. As I say, the report does make for interesting and informative reading. I've merely summarised there, and I advise best that you have a look at it in the link that's attached in the episode show notes. Have a read for yourself and see what you think. However, despite the IOPC investigation into North Wales Police's interactions with Mr Churton after he complained about Davidson, there was no similar probe into why Davidson was not recalled to prison. It effectively meant that North Wales Police did not breach procedures as they were not required to highlight incidents to the privately owned Wales Community Rehabilitation Company, which was contracted to look after low to medium risk offenders, which Davidson had been classed as, and was supposed to be managing Davidson's release, or the National Probation Service. The IOPC did call for North Wales Police, the National Probation Service, and the CRC to seriously improve their information sharing as a matter of priority, leading to the CRC accepting that there had been shortcomings in their management of Davidson. 
Quite tellingly, I thought, the company went into administration not long afterwards, in March 2019, and offender supervision was then brought back under the full remit of the National Probation Service. The Probation Service and North Wales Police later issued a written apology to the family of Nicholas Churton in December of that year, which in part assured them that serious lessons had been learned. Which came just a little bit too late, really, I thought. Now, the name of Nicholas Churton was once again mentioned in Mould Crown Court on the 20th of June 2020, but this time not in connection with Jordan Davidson or any possible police misconduct. This time, it was in connection with then 26-year-old mother of four, Chantelle Natasha Gibson of Myler Place on the High Street in Ruabon, who was appearing in court to plead guilty to fraud charges between July 25th and September 6th, 2016, as well as trying to defraud her own bank four times by pretending her credit cards had been stolen, when in fact, she herself had racked up more than £2,500 arrears on them. Her then-boyfriend, Colin Stephen Pemberton, of Bryn Havod in Wrexham, appeared with her, charged with aiding and abetting fraud. Yes, the same Colin Pemberton that discovered the body of Nicholas Churton. Between them, far from being a friend to Nick, they'd swindled him at £25,780 in 2016. Crime that only came to light when police looked into his finances following his murder. Oh yes. Miles Wilson KC, prosecuting, described Mr Churton as vulnerable when he was swindled, with friends explaining that he'd received a divorce settlement of some £13,000 in 2016 but was drinking a lot and wasn't looking after himself properly, living in a flat in Ruabon described as bare, the prosecutor said. Having said that, he was clearly a generous man. He allowed a homeless drug user to stay with him, but his friends were becoming concerned that he was being taken advantage of by visitors to his flat. These two defendants were such visitors, Mr Wilson added. The court heard that Mr Churton had taken pity on Gibson and had lent her money to help her get back on her feet, but that she'd instead taken advantage of having his savings account details by using them to set up two current accounts in his name that only she had knowledge of. Over a period of just a few months, she transferred £17,500 into the two accounts, from which she then withdrew cash and transferred cash to her own account. She even set up a number of betting accounts in the pensioner's name, Mr Wilson said. These two accounts were set up in July 2016, and within months, the savings account was empty. In addition, the two accounts had built up overdrafts amounting to nearly £8,500. In effect, Mr Churton was cleaned out. When Mr Churton became aware of these accounts, he'd called Nationwide Building Society to question them, saying he didn't know what they were. The phone call was recorded, in which he clearly asked for the accounts to be frozen. However, the next day, he called back and told them to disregard, and that two people were going to pay him back. But hearing this, Nationwide decided to carry out their own investigations, and refused to unfreeze them. Mr Wilson explained. That's when Colin Pemberton comes into the picture, as Chantelle Gibson needed a man to call the bank. He repeatedly phoned Nationwide pretending to be Mr Churton, asking for the accounts to be unfrozen. He was able to provide Mr Churton's information, his date of birth and address to get through security. Some calls were even made on Mr Churton's own phone. In total, he made 13 such calls in the space of a couple of months. However, the accounts remained frozen. Gibson, who had one previous caution, and Pemberton, who had 14 previous convictions for some 26 offences, were told they were of higher culpability because of the sophistication involved in their crimes 
on the vulnerability of Mr. Churton. Defending Gibson, Philip Climo Casey said she had had a somewhat difficult life and admitted that she took advantage of Mr. Churton's generosity, saying, To say she's ashamed of that behaviour would be no small understatement, and there have been tears this morning. She was a gambling addict who got into a position of thinking one big win would solve all of her problems, which of course it didn't. Mr. Climo added that Gibson was absolutely terrified by the prospect of prison and the thought of her children being taken into care. He said a reference from one of her children's head teachers proved she had turned a corner over the last four years and was now a dedicated parent, asking the judge to show a degree of mercy and to give her, I quote, a chance to show this is a part of her life that she's put behind her. Philip Tully Casey, defending Pemberton, also told the court how Pemberton regretted his actions, highlighting that none of his attempts to unfreeze the accounts had been successful and said his actions had been based on a degree of misguided loyalty to his partner at that time. A great deal of the £25,000 loss had taken place well before Mr Pemberton became involved. His culpability falls towards the lower end of the scale but he accepts what he did was wrong, Mr Tully added. Presiding Judge Nicola Jones said, This was extremely nasty and mean-spirited on a victim who is now deceased. He was a very vulnerable man who had considerable difficulties, but in spite of that was a man of great generosity, welcoming people into his home and befriending them. At the time of the offences, you were a couple together, and befriended him and defrauded him of £25,780. You two took advantage of his kind and generous nature. Addressing Gibson, the judge said that although the custody threshold had been passed, she'd taken into account a compelling mitigation, and the fact going to prison would have a significant impact on her children, then aged six, five, three and one. Gibson was duly sentenced to 18 months imprisonment, suspended for 18 months, and as part of her suspended sentence, Gibson was ordered to undertake 10 days of rehabilitation activity, as well as complete 250 hours of unpaid work. The judge believing she'd exhibited genuine remorse, had been apologetic, and had not committed any crimes since. Addressing Pemberton, the judge said though she acknowledged he had a smaller secondary role to play, he had committed the crime before the completion of another suspended sentence he had received previously for theft, and so, sentencing him to 16 months imprisonment, told him, It is my judgment you were not capable of rehabilitation, and that you'd be a poor risk for a suspended sentence today, as you've repeatedly breached community orders made by the courts in the past. Get yourself to the nick, you horrible twat. The court also heard that Mr Churton's family had been compensated by Nationwide to the sum of £8,000 towards their losses. But the judge said she would not be imposing any compensation orders for them on the defendants, explaining, Realistically, I think there is no way any inroads could ever be made to repay this money. And the danger is, of course, it will upset her rehabilitation if she has a compensation order of such an amount hanging over her. A heavy financial penalty will give her more difficulties. Now, I do see the logic of that, of course, but that still just doesn't seem right, that, does it? However, in September 2021, Gibson appeared once again before Mould Crown Court for breaching a suspended sentence requirements by having failed to attend a planned appointment as part of her sentence in July of that year. She admitted the breach, but when presiding recorder Simon Mills said he wanted to know why her engagement with the order had started well and had subsequently become sporadic, Gibson told the court she'd been struggling with her mental health. The counsel, Patrick Garland Casey, explained, She's been under the care of her GP and has been medicated, but unfortunately, she's been discharged from the surgery and has not had access to her medication. 
She's attempted to keep the probation service informed of her mental health and has been taking steps to improve matters. Mr Gartland furthered that Gibson had since secured a job as a housekeeper and was even enrolled on a college course. Addressing Gibson, Recorder Mills told her, In your case, I am not going to activate the suspended sentence. I am impressed to hear you've got some work and you're doing a course. You have a lot of unpaid work left to do and I'm not going to change that. I don't think you're just defying us, but if it turns into defiance, you'll end up going down those steps with all the disaster that brings. She then received an extension in the operational period of a suspended sentence of six months, taking it to a total of two years, and received an extra four days of rehabilitation activity. To date, that is the last reported instance of Gibson appearing before a court. And I have to say, however commendable trying to get your clusterfuck sound in life together may be, doing something like she and Pemberton did is the epitome of callous, isn't it? Absolute vile scum. I didn't realise what a complex tale the exploits of Jordan Davidson would be until I came to properly put the research together to make Crime Wave. And for something like this right on my doorstep, where I could actually visualise and visit places and the scenes, well, you don't squander something such as this. And I am surprised at myself that it's taken me as long as it has to bring this tale to the show. A disturbed and dangerous individual indeed, Davidson, isn't he? Look at the list of offences you've heard of, all of which took place within less than a square mile. And I'm not exaggerating here, some even in sight of others. And you realise this is no master criminal we're talking about here. This is someone not planning, but simply compelled to offend. And just does it as and when the mood or the urge takes him, stealing the daftest of things, a coat, shoplifting goods worth less than £4, choosing a hair salon to rob, etc. And whilst the degree of sympathy may be felt for anyone who has had such a turbulent upbringing as his, according to a couple of people I spoke to who knew him, which included periods in and out of the care system, rumoured sexual abuse, leading to homelessness, drug abuse, and then offending to pay for said drugs, that stops when you cross the line and start inflicting misery on others to satisfy your own means. That line is well and truly in the distance when you obtain a machete and begin using that in muggings and assaults, and then of course, murder. It may seem a cliche, but with the escalating level of offending we've heard of with Davidson, this was someone habitually armed with knives and even an axe. He was always building up to kill, but that March evening, he chose to. It wasn't self-defence, or it wasn't an accident. There is no question he deliberately selected Nick Churton because he knew he was a vulnerable person and, having already unsuccessfully tried to steal from him twice, knowing he had nothing to steal, what other conclusion can you arrive at? The gloating text messages he then sent immediately following the murder and what you can decipher clearly from the dreadful text speak is that he loved what he'd done show that he had neither remorse nor care about his actions, hacking a pensioner to death with a machete. I believe also very strongly that if it wasn't for the presence of the 15-year-old girl he was infatuated with, and what stroke of fortune that was, then he would have killed Michael Rogers the following evening, and he really would have cut his head off without batting an eyelid. Having so brutally murdered Nick Churton the night before, in a sick mind such as Davidson's, with that you must still be buzzing from something like that. That must surely be the ultimate thing to do. But how do you top what you've already done? And if he had, I don't think he would have stopped there. Robert Brown was incredibly lucky to live, as were possibly John and Porsche Roberts. For I think this is an individual who would have killed and killed until he was cornered by police, and then would have tried to kill them also. Look at his arrest in Flint if you ever doubt that for a second. Personally, I believe Davidson really would have opted to go out suicide by cop. 
I do find it a bit of a shambles that it took Davidson being arrested four times from his release on licence to even consider recalling him to prison. Because, to begin with, being nicked four times on licence isn't the actions of someone trying to go straight, is it? Keeping the nose clean because they don't want to go back to prison. Surely, if you're in that custody suite once having been arrested, and a PNC check reveals that you're out on licence from prison, then it's quite simple. End of licence. You've bollocked it up for yourself there, and back to the nick you go. I fully understand and agree with the call for investigations into the conduct of some officers and civilian staff of North Wales Police on suspicion of misconduct, and the findings of the report, the link to which, as I said before, is in the episode show notes, well, let's just say my opinion is that those under investigation got off incredibly lightly and luckily there. I know some things are grey areas, I know how busy the probation service is, and I know, as I'm sure you do too, that sometimes, outside contracting a private firm for something, especially as serious as risk assessing and supervising offenders in the community, which to me stinks to high heaven of a cost-cutting exercise, is an absolute shamble of bollocks, isn't it? However way you want to dress it up, surely common sense says the fact remains. If you arrest an individual carrying a bladed article, who carries a knife around in public for a good reason, whose record when in custody shows he previously received a 12-month sentence for possessing a similar article whilst in prison, and his PNC check shows that he's been arrested already more than once whilst on licence, you don't bloody bail him, you get him back to the nick, sharpish. What more do you need to see? An apology and lessons have been learned spiel from the probation services and North Wales Police is all well and good, for it is the very least that they should do. But it doesn't bring Nick Churton back though, does it? And I completely understand Nick's family feeling as bitter as they do, because Davidson really should never have been on the streets to be able to kill him in the first place. Is misconduct the right word though? Perhaps negligence is a better one. What do you think? It is, as we always trawl out, a dreadful tale here on The Enthusiast, where overall, I wouldn't want you to lose sight of the gentle and kind man who may have somewhat lost his way for a time and who ultimately was let down by those who should have protected him. I hope that you remember Nick overall going forth from Crime Wave. I always shall and I shall be off to raise a pint for him very soon. I would love, as always, hearing your thoughts and feedback concerning the episodes that have made up the Crime Wave tale. Now, if you want to do so, then you can do so in the threads that are up on the show's Facebook discussion group, or wherever you want to, folks, really. Any of the show's social media is good. Or even, if you're in the area and fancy scheduling a pint to chat about stuff, give me a shout. With that, I'm done and on to the next tale that will be inbound for you soon. I work harder than a Schofield solicitor, I tell you, I really do. I thank you so very much for joining me in the peaks for Crime Wave, I really do. And all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast. From me and the Mog, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, stay safe. Thanks very much for joining us and goodbye for now.